And this is the much-touted Green Majority Radio Program, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour, beastly things to say every single week. This past weekend, I caught a glimpse of the infinite, and I have entered my body from another realm. Wow, how very, like, Marvel Studios, multiverse of madness of you. I'm ready for the modern opera. Hit me up. Ooh, what a way to think of to think of Marvel. A modern opera. I wonder what Martin Scorsese would have to say to that. Scorsese, you too will eventually enter your body from another realm and gain a new lease. We are on CIUT 89.5 FM or your local community radio station or your podcast platform, Harbinger Media Network. Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter is not here today. I do not know why. I don't think that's been disclosed. But we do pray for his soul. And he w- you will hear his voice, however. He'll be interviewing Sarah Buchanan of the Toronto Environmental Alliance about climate politics in the city. 27 minutes of solid, pure, unfiltered butter. And... My name is David Hostetter. And my name is Lauren Latour. And I think they probably do filter butter. Or at least they filter milk before it becomes butter to get rid of like, this is going to sound gross, but like hair, gross stuff. Well, I've I've actually begun consuming cultured butter, which is a very delicious form. Is that different from ghee? It's different from ghee. Ghee is clarified butter so they've taken out the protein from the butter where it's almost all fat you can cook it to a very high temperature uh cultured butter i don't know what it means but it has a slightly more good gut stuff great gut stuff yeah awesome we all need that we all need we all need to to nurture our gut biomes so i've heard and today there was one in toronto i guess there was one in ottawa too how many cities did this protest occur i don't know but there was a Free Grassy Narrows protest. They are protesting now uh, mining on their territory, unwanted mining. If Grassy Narrows is something you're unfamiliar with, we don't have time to dig into it today on the show, but I would urge you to do a quick Google and learn about what's happening with that First Nation and ways you can support them financially or otherwise. And we're just going to go through some climate stories here, comment on them, and then get to Stefan's breathtakingly splendid interview with Sarah Buchanan. All right, are we ready for this? Should I do this? Rock on. Let's do it to it. And the language obscene, an engine, an engine, chuffing me off like a jewel. All right. So Canada's Speaker of the House has resigned after inviting a 98-year-old Nazi war veteran to Parliament. All members gave Yaroslav Hunka of the 14th Waffen-SS Grenadier Division, a standing ovation. Uh, The United States, meanwhile, has sent cluster bombs, depleted uranium rounds, and all kinds of other weapons to Ukraine in the past little while, and has been building up troops near China. This endless war machine directed by the Pentagon is by some measures the single highest greenhouse gas emitter in the world. Netta C. Crawford, author of a book from last year on U.S. military emissions, was quoted in Mother Jones as saying, quote, The U.S. military is the largest user of fossil fuels and energy in the U.S. government. 
U.S. military emissions are about 51 million metric tons CO2 equivalent annually in the last two years. This is a reduction from past military emissions, but still larger than the emissions of most countries. That does not include the emissions caused by the destruction of property, the burning of infrastructure, including cities, that the U.S. may engage in when they make war. Rukaya Zaruk also wrote in Mother Jones, quote, In December 2021, about 6,000 people became sick when jet fuel from a World War II-era Navy storage facility reportedly leaked into the drinking water aquifers of Hawaiian residents. Famously, at North Carolina's Camp Lejeune military base, up to one million people were exposed to contaminated drinking water over the course of 25 years. And on military bases constructed for America's post-9-11 wars, trash was often destroyed in burn pits that contained everything from computers to furniture to medical waste that released toxic smoke breathed in by soldiers and civilians alike. Of course, you shouldn't burn toxic stuff if you're in a country droning random people you know it's just it just you gotta you gotta maintain a healthy environment when you're when you're droning populations it's just good practice um but just circling back to that very first sentence for folks who might be like sorry what happened in canada's house of parliament if you're either a listener from outside of so-called canada or if you are just somebody who lives within so-called canada who is suffering because your news networks are no longer able to post to social media the way they once were um, because everybody's experiencing that right now. Anyway, so the story for folks who don't know in a nutshell is um, Anthony Rhoda, who was previously up until this morning, Wednesday um, at the time of reporting, I believe, um, was the Speaker of the House in uh, for Canada's Parliament. And he has like a like David said, resigned because I believe it was him who invited this uh, war veteran, this war veteran in his 90s, to come to Canada's parliament um, when I believe Zelensky was also present. And the idea there was it was he was a Ukrainian war vet who'd fought in World War II and everybody was clapping. And that seems like a really great idea on the surface until you think back to your, I don't know, grade six, grade seven I want to say history, social studies class and who were um, Axis countries and who were allied countries. And you remember that, yes, um, although Russia is doing bad stuff right now in invading Ukraine at the time, they were an allied nation against Nazi Germany and Ukraine was allied with Germany at the time, which means that, yes, this uh, this very elderly veteran who we applauded in the House of Commons um, was a member of the SS for all intents and purposes. Um, and as a result of this big snafu, Anthony Rhoda has stepped down. Um, it was seemingly something that nobody in the House of Commons picked up on at the time because, like David said, everybody applauded him. Everybody was really laudatory. And it was only after the fact that I'm sure someone's staffer looked at them and said, hey, wait a second, I'm a history major and I think XYZ is the case. Anyway, this is going to go down in history as one of those big eye rolling moments for Canada because it's were, hugely cringeworthy. Yeah, I mean, it, and there were Ukrainians who fought with the Red Army against the Nazis in World War II as well. So it's not as though it's not it's not as though it's not as though they can like, you know, it's not as though every elderly Ukrainian World War II war dude was a Nazi. This one just happened to be so. Right. So so they managed to find the one who was. OK, thank you for that correction. I appreciate that. Wouldn't want to. That would have been a, a nasty statement to put out there on my part. 
I don't know. We're just becoming so anti-Russian that we'll like we'll pull up all the we'll like do whatever we whatever we can, you know. Well, and well, and that that's the thing. It's like a point was made by a friend of mine that okay, caveat, putting this out there, I don't want anybody to misconstrue what I'm saying. Russia is in the wrong. Russia should not be invading Ukraine. Full stop. Obviously, nobody needs me to make that statement. It's self-evident. Um, but yes, um, it's gotten to the point where the discourse is so anti-Russia that it's starting to be reflective of like almost it, it's starting to be misconstrued or like there is a way in which it's being perverted to be anti-communist, which therefore is pro-fascist. And it's 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 reverting us back to this really icky Cold War kind of East versus West um, state of mind and perspective that for like realistically speaking didn't go away that didn't disappear that didn't go anywhere it's just being reignited in this moment of like the overt rise of fascism as well in a really nasty way and again that's not to say that russia as it currently exists is actually in any meaningful way a communist state i'm just saying that there is still this idea that russia and some eastern countries still represent a communist ideology which again isn't necessarily even really the case anymore Russia's, for all intents and purposes, an authoritarian nation. This is getting way, way out of my pay grade. All right. So Doug Ford has reversed his position on the green belt, calling it a mistake. His mistake, of course, was to get caught giving giving away land to his, his bros. Ford's policies are still going to create a lot more urban sprawl, however, still putting precious farmland and ecosystems at risk with new roads and highways. France Hartman of the Alliance for a Livable Ontario told the Energy Mix, quote, Sadly, the Greenbelt land grab was only the most visible tip of the iceberg. A whole bunch of other bad policy has come out of this government, and the damage these other policies will do if they continue is significantly greater than the damage that would have happened had they gone ahead and put development on the Greenbelt lands. Every acre of sprawl takes away precious resources that are badly needed to build housing in existing towns and cities. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, yes, sprawl might result in more single unit or not single unit, like single family dwelling homes spread out over hectares and hectares and acres and acres and square miles. But it doesn't actually result in the kind of housing we need, nor does it result in the kind of affordable housing we need, as opposed to like increasing density in our urban centers and sort of filling in that like what's often referred to as like the mushy middle and like mid rise and mid density housing. Anyway, this is one of those things that I I am hopeful that this is what Doug Ford will now be remembered by. The same way that like decades later, if like the name Bob Ray is uttered in my parents' household, my parents are like, do you remember Ray days? Like I'm sort of hoping this results in the same thing. And I've yet to hear the same kind of like catchy phrasing. Like we don't really have the equivalent of like this the way the states tack gate onto everything now. It's like everything is now a version of Watergate, Pizzagate. Gamergate, whatever. We don't necessarily have that same kind of terminology here, but we need something like that for this so we can continue to hammer home the fact that this was Doug Ford's biggest snafu ever. Um, And no, this is not necessarily the worst thing he's ever done. It's not even necessarily the worst thing he's ever done from an environmental standpoint. Um, He's rolled back a ton of legislation and regulation over the last several years that has decimated um, sort of like the environment in various capacities across the province. But at least this is something he was stopped and halted and called out on in a really fantastic way. Um, And that's entirely to the credit of like, I know Steph has said this before, but like the journalists and local activists who pushed back. So somebody come up with a clever name. To, so we can enshrine this 
and connect it to Doug Ford's name forever. Maybe somebody already has and I just haven't heard it yet. If so, send it to us and we'll start using that terminology. Let's call it the tug, the Doug tug. He's tugging back. He tried to tug back the green belt, tug back the green rug. The Doug tug. Ew, I hate that. (laughs) Yeah, so the Doug tug. That's fine. Uh, There have been all kinds of disasters around the world. With flooding and wildfires recently, Canada has burned more than ever this year, and there is still a thick haze and bad air in many places as a result. Werner Kurtz from the National from National Resources Canada has estimated that the devastating wildfire season will have brought over two and a half times the total emissions of Canada's economic sectors. Now, I'm assuming he means Canada's industrial activity, not literally all of the emissions that are released through all, all transportation and, and every every kind of activity in Canada. But he seems to be implying that the wildfires have brought over double Canada's total emissions. But every but everything I read was just talking about sec- economic sectors. Now, I don't know what specifically that means. Yeah, I don't either. I appreciate you trying to figure out what exactly is meant by economic sectors, but that is kind of obfuscating language. But either way, it it sounds brutal. It's a brutal statistic. I don't doubt the essence of of the truth he's trying to tell there. And meanwhile, the, a Guardian investigation has found that almost everyone in Europe is breathing polluted air that causes four hundred thousand premature deaths a year. And London Mayor Sadiq Khan is saying that his city will likely face forty five degrees Celsius days in the near future, which would make subways impossible to run and care homes and schools too hot to be in. Yeah, this was something, this quote from Sadiq Khan jumped out at me because, um, well, A, you just imagine all those poor little English roses trying to make it through 45 degrees Celsius days. But anyway, no, the the point that he makes about subways here, and I feel like that's something that I would be curious to see if that's a conversation that's happening in municipal um, governing spaces uh, when they're talking about uh, adaptation measures, because I know... Yes, everybody knows that Ottawa's LRT, or at least I hope by this point, everybody knows that Ottawa's LRT is like completely plagued by like poor operations. It's never functioned at full capacity. It's really, really brutal because it breaks all the time and it's brand new. And one of the reasons that's the case is because Ottawa is a place, apparently the only place in the world that has some sort of train system like this. It was trying to install a train system where it gets as hot as it does and as cold as it does. And it doesn't mean that trains don't exist in other places that are on average hotter or are on average colder, but it's that we in this city have this huge scale of temperatures that the trains have to be equipped to withstand. And that in itself is apparently incredibly difficult from an engineering standpoint, because you have to deal with that kind of heave that comes with the cooling and warming of your materials metal or whatever other otherwise materials you're using and that's sort of occurring to me is that um <laughs> in addition to all of the million things that we're expecting municipalities to be able to develop adaptive measures to making sure that our transit system something that we know we're going to increasingly re- increasingly rely on as we move away from single passenger vehicles and towards more networked more robust means of public transportation and transit. I don't know. Are our trains even going to be able to withstand it? Or is everybody everybody going to be living in a city like Ottawa where, yes, theoretically, I would love to take the LRT every day because when it works, it works beautifully. But the problem is it just doesn't work half the time because the train just is not built to withstand various temperatures that that, that this new climate is going to throw at it. 
So the president of the UN's decertification conference has warned that climate change can bring major disruptions to global food supply, even below 1.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, the IEA is now predicting fossil fuel use to peak before 2030, although not quickly enough to keep us below 1.5. They're also saying that fossil fuel demand will fall 25% by 2030. In addition, renewable energy is being built faster globally than anybody predicted. UN Climate Secretary Christiana Figueres said recently that fossil fuel companies should not attend this year's conference of parties in the UAE unless they are planning to change their business models. When I first read over these notes, I didn't process Christiana Figueres. I fully read it as Christia Freeland. And for a split second, I was like, wow. <laughs> How surprising. How wonderful. Of course, that wasn't Christina Freeland. And of course, it was Christina Figueres. Um, anyway, so circling back to, yes, this new IEA report that came out this week, the IEA issues a report every year um, that's like their their updated net zero roadmap. And, and the last couple of years, it's done a really good job of being really realistic about the kinds of um, cuts we're going to have to make to fossil fuel production in order to um, maintain or come back to a 1.5 degree target and just like maintain a, 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 an even remotely livable planet. And what I'm going to do now is none of these thoughts are mine. These are all friend of the podcast, Julia Levin from Environmental Defenses tweets because um, she broke it down in a really fantastic way. So just a couple main highlights and takeaways for the IEA report are that um, it now projects because it's it's it, it presents models and projections that uh, demand for coal, oil, and natural gas, like David said, is gonna, are going to peak this decade, even without any new climate policies. So that's regardless of what kind of legislation we get. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't fight for legislation. It just means that like truly the death knell is ringing for these, for these fossil fuel emitting industries. Um, the IEA scenario has oil and gas demand falling 20% by 2030, like you said, Dave, and cut in half over the next 10 years. Um, and this is sending a really strong message to Canada because it means that like higher cost producers are going to be kind of squeezed out of this declining market. And we're really kind of unprepared for what's coming for, from an economic standpoint. Um, the IEA also uh, warns that any attempts by governments like, like Canada um, that might prioritize domestic fossil fuel production, they have to recognize the risk of locking in emissions that are going to push the world over the 1.5 um oh my god degrees that's the word i'm looking for threshold and that any new projects are going to face like not only major environmental risk obviously and put us in put us in harm's way that way but are, are going to continue to face really major commercial risks and again this isn't information that our listeners don't have this isn't information that a lot of the climate community doesn't already have and know but it's meaningful that it's being put in this iea or international energy agency report because again this is generally speaking been perceived to be a somewhat not conservative right wing but conservative in in the um uh in like the actual dictionary definition sense of the word, like a reserved, not in any way radical um, report that comes out every year. So this is this is a piece of text that that can theoretically and should theoretically be taken seriously by legis uh, by legislators from kind of across the scale. Um, that's all I'm going to say for right now because there's there's other good stuff that came out of this, but um, always really interesting when the IEA report comes out because it's it's a big reality check for a lot of people who otherwise aren't necessarily as plugged into the world into this world as maybe our listeners are and last few stories here Mi'kmaq fishers on the east coast are still being intimidated uh, by non-indigenous fishers for exercising their treaty rights to hold small self-regulated fisheries 
So it's like a group of people standing around checking out their stuff. Police showed up. Um, the Lac Larange Indian Band has struck a deal with Saskatoon to establish an urban reserve. Chief Tammy Cook Searson said, quote, We're hoping to get more of our band members and more First Nations and more Indigenous people into the field of sciences. This is a big process today. Then they'll be able to have a tax-free income on that property for the ones that are First Nations. An Innu government in Quebec has evicted a mineral company from their territory for unwanted exploration. This is the second time in two years, the last two years they've done it. Their lawyer said, quote, the free mining system is unlike any other kind of legal framework because it denies the possibility of being properly and meaningfully consulted and accommodated. And high schools in BC are now including a mandatory indigenous focused course. That's a really exciting final final story. I know it's really brief, just that high schools in BC are, are including that indigenous focus course. And it seems so little, but this is, I feel like steps like this go so far in, it's not just that folks are then made aware of, of harms that have been perpetrated against indigenous um, nations and communities in so-called Canada in the past, but it means that they're sort of like coming into their adulthood and coming into their personhood with a slightly better understanding of yes those injustices that have been perpetrated but then also how to better show up as citizens as community members as as if they're settlers as settlers in solidarity with indigenous folks and it also just like increases that indigenous presence and that um respect for indigeneity within a, a school system and the fact that this is coming at a time when we know that young people are being so confronted with really gross disinformation and right-wing sort of like for all intents and purposes propaganda online every single day i feel like every single day i see a new video of some like i don't know teen boy using a terrible slur because he watches andrew tate all day like the fact that this is the kind of educating that we're doing in schools is 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 quite heartening the only other sort of like kind of kind of potentially good news story that i wanted to to bring up on this note um is that uh the manitoba provincial election is happening on October 3rd, which is in like just a handful of days at the time we're recording this and when it comes out. And apparently um, the NDP headed up by Wab Canoe this time, who's a fairly high profile um, indigenous person in so-called Canada, is in a really, really good position to potentially become premier. And that would make him the first indigenous premier that has ever been in, in so-called Canada. So obviously not counting chickens before they hatch, but like that could be a really, really fantastic development coming around the corner um, in just a couple of days. Nice. So if you're in Manitoba and you're listening, get to the polls and vote progressively, please. And thank you. Yeah. And these high school indigenous courses are so sorely needed. Like we don't, we didn't, we didn't learn real history. You know, we haven't, no, no Canadian learns the real history of, of the land that we're in in school no, no not at all my grade seven social studies teacher 100 like the the joke in the class was she had a full-on crush on champlain and it was like if you have a crush on champlain there's yeah. no way you're delivering yeah. you're, you're delivering a like a level-headed non-biased decolonial uh history program love champlain champlain great crotch on him like i swear every picture he's got these tight ass pants on right babe Babe, I don't even remember the name of that teacher, but I do remember that she had a real Jones for Champlain. Oh, who doesn't? Right. 
So we're going to do some more music and come back with Stefan's interview with Sarah Buchanan about Toronto and climate politics. And this song is called Mushrooms by Yound.
will come to make us an ocean. The pleasures of the day, the vibrations of the night. Welcome back to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country. Or perhaps you found us on the podcast, which you can find anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. Check them out if you have not, as previewed earlier on the show. My name is Stephen Hostetter, and I am here with Sarah Buchanan, the Campaigns Director with the Toronto Environmental Alliance. Thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. Great to be here. So. I think we had you on the show about a year ago when I would say life was at least a little bit different to be a climate activist in the city. And so for folks who may not be from Toronto, the show is national, or folks who just don't follow along too much, can you give us like a quick backstory of the last year and where we are right now? Oh my goodness. A lot has happened in Toronto in the last year. We've had about 18 elections. No, I, I'm joking. One one major election, we, a year ago, we were just coming out of a city election where uh, Mayor Tory was, was re-elected, plus a new councilman. Resignation of, of Tory, Olivia Chow was elected as mayor. And, you know, in addition, we had some, some climate uh, change incidents, including some heat waves, some cool waves. There was a, a lot of things have happened. Uh, in the last year, but probably uh, most notably politically, we do have a new mayor, and uh, and you know there are some climate action commitments that uh, that we're looking forward to, to, and they seem to be starting to hit the ground running as well. Yeah, thank you for that very clear and concise high level explanation because it is a time of at least I would say some hope. And also some significant trepidation. Trepidation because of the you know budgetary concerns that the city faces, and hope right. because maybe we'll do something about it. But maybe I'm let's sorry, start with I that. skipped over that. I, yeah. I I have to take a second and, and say that we also found out that Toronto is facing sort of this immense fiscal cliff that we are about to hurdle ourselves off of. 
So we were probably finding that out around this time last year. And Toronto is still facing that same fiscal cliff. There's some more ideas swirling around about what to do about it. But yes, that is a huge, huge revelation that came. Right. And so maybe because it's something that I have tried to tell people but haven't done a very good job of, can you explain what it is that made this fiscal cliff? Because like we have mentioned on the show consistently that the city of Toronto is not allowed to run a deficit and that mm-hmm. leads into this. But then it's hard to say the city is allowed to run a deficit and yet we are facing a $1.5 billion deficit because you're like, well, if you can't run a deficit, how are you doing this? And so can you tell us like what we've been doing previously to try to avoid this and sort of why it's all coming to a head now? Right. I'll stack it up to two big factors. One is that property taxes in recent years just haven't been increasing at the rate of inflation or uh, the rate that they need to, to support just the the basics of city service. So holding property taxes below uh, the rate of inflation for so many years has just eaten, you know, progressively more and more of a chunk out of uh, Toronto's budget, which, which, and in order to keep the facade up, they've been doing some fancy footwork to do things like, you know, borrow against, I'm not going to use the financial terms because I am no expert in this area, but every budget, there seem to be more and more bizarre combinations of words involving debt and capital and expenditures, et cetera, et cetera, to try to, you know, push this, this, this rolling ball. Uh, I don't know what the analogy is I'm looking for, but to, to try to kick this can farther down the road. So there's, there's that factor of just really just not increasing property taxes, the intake as much as they needed to over the the years. At the same time as uh, this growing factor of the way that, the way that Toronto, the powers that Toronto has been given to tax uh, to bring in money into into Toronto's municipal budget have not grown with the times. It's akin to sort of giving us a horse-drawn carriage uh, and telling us to use it on the streets of Toronto uh, today. Um, that's the power of taxation that Toronto has uh, to only be able to use, you know, property taxes and a limited number of other tools. While we at the province and the federal government have these really big hammers of income taxes, sales taxes, Toronto's not allowed to use any of those. Uh, in fact, Toronto, you know, will will essentially be sued if we try to do anything resembling a sales tax or an income tax. So the toolbox that we have is pretty limited. And with the hesitation to increase property taxes, that has led to a, a real erosion of the city's coffers. Right. And so my understanding, correct me wrong, is that previously to this, we had sort of been pulling money out of like funds that were set aside for future projects or, you know, infrastructure funding, something like that. And like, Mm -hmm. that's obviously short-sighted and bad, but it's now even that is drying up. And that's sort of why we're facing this point of like, you can't even start pulling money out of those things anymore because we're sort of running out of this money we'd fared it away previously. Exactly. Yeah. They're running out of pockets to hidden pockets to pull money out of. And there have, you know, staff have have sounded the alarm essentially this year and said that we really don't have anything after this year, we don't have anything else to pull from on the capital side, the capital sort of the large uh, infrastructure projects and things like that. So it's going to start to really, really show and we're not going to be able to to build what we need to build or or repair what we need to repair. Um, We already have been kind of delaying some projects that aren't uh, aren't as urgent and even some that are. If you look at, you know, for example, some transit projects or for a long time, TCHC capital repairs 
but it's, it's, you know, they've sounded the alarm to say that it's going to get worse. There's really no more pockets to pull from here. And they do generally try to follow pretty strict best practices when it comes to not exposing, you know, the city of Toronto to undue risk in their borrowing practices as well. Right. And so that's a pretty comprehensive and relatively dire explanation as to where we are. And yet there is hope. The story of the last year, despite this increasingly depressing fiscal conversation, has been one of renewed belief that perhaps we can actually start addressing our problems because of some of the changes in terms of who's in power. And so recently, there was a couple conversations around trying to address this funding conversation in this funding piece. Can you talk to us about what those conversations were and what it would mean? Yes, absolutely. So they've been kicking the can down the road for a while to have this big conversation of how are we going to use the tools that we have within our powers in Toronto to bring in more money for the the city services and, and the real basics that people depend on, things like filling potholes, things like, you know, emptying garbages, things like parks, all, all those good things, things like, you know, shelters. So new mayor takes charge and immediately says, we have to have that conversation right now. Called called a summer session, brought everybody back from their, you know, various cottages by everybody means city council and, and, and brought forward, staff brought forward a, a report with a whole bunch of different potential tools that the city could consider, council could consider using to bring in new ways of of funding the critical services in the city. Some of those tools were things like what we've been calling a mansion tax. So that was an idea that came up during the campaign where you've probably heard of the land transfer tax, where when someone, when a house changes hands or a piece of property changes hands, the city charges a, takes a certain amount off the top for real estate sales with a booming real estate sector. Toronto has been increasingly relying on that land transfer tax to save it every single year to throw on its cape and zoom in and say, wow, you know, we're going to we're going to amp up the city's budget. Uh, the real estate market isn't quite as as hot as it used to be. So there's also some questions about whether that can still save us. Anyway, mansion tax is basically saying for really high value properties, I think it is over $3 million that they're looking at, they're going to charge a little more on the land transfer tax. So folks who are in that, you know, starter home, smaller homes, end of the market, where a lot of the crunch is, they're not going to be seeing an increase, but the, you know, the sort of Rosedale mansions, when they change hands, they're going to be taking a little more off that. So that's one of the ideas that's in the mix that that was actually immediately approved. Other tools, one thing we have talked about and pushed for is something called a commercial parking levy. That essentially means that any any parking spots in Toronto that are in a parking lot, so not you know in your driveway or on the streets, they would see a, a small surcharge uh, that would go back to the city. And there could be potentially exemptions based on, you know, if it's a hospital parking lot or uh, smaller strip malls, you name it, they're, they're, you know, they're talking about what could be exempted, but they haven't approved it yet. But that's something that we could, that could also help 
shift people onto transit when they're going places like Yorkdale Mall, which has a TTC station. If you don't need to drive there, now you've got just a slight incentive to think about not getting in a car with one person and driving a gas-powered car all the way across town, parking in a huge concrete lot, and then getting back in it with you know one iPhone uh, charger and then driving all the way back home. Uh, so that's that's something that us along with, with TTC riders have been you know trying to bring forward. And there are, yeah, a number of other uh, tools. And also in that package, they did talk about the idea of a sales tax that would go to the city. Now, I mentioned before, the city is not allowed to do, to, to bring in a, a sales tax. How would they do that? They would ask the province to <laughs> grant the city the power to do it, or even just to give the city, you know, a small portion of the sales tax they already collect and just Instead of the city having to kind of go begging every year and say, we need more money for this, we need more money for that, please bail us out. They just, you know, crunch a number in a spreadsheet and say every year you're going to get this amount from provincial sales tax and that will, that'll save a lot of people a lot of time. So that's one of the, one of the pieces under conversation as well. Awesome. And so we're trying to solve this problem. Uh, of of funding and and it won't be an easy fix, right? Like the only way it's an easy fix is if either the feds or the province comes in and says, we'll give you a billion dollars, which would be amazing, but I'm not holding my breath. The, and so, it, it, and, and also it will probably have to come in multiple ways, right? It probably looks like a couple of these different revenue tools, et cetera, et cetera. But the problem was so bad that over the last three to four years that we've been talking, the sort of call from civil society has increasingly galvanized around this one question, right? Like almost every civil society group has sort of shifted at least somewhat of their messaging away from, you know, help us in these specific areas to you just need to start making more money so you can do your jobs. Because civil society is increasingly being expected to pick up the slack where the city is not doing their work. Every time the city falls back, some part of society has to show up in some way and we don't have the resources or the ability or the power to do it as effectively as the city just could. And so it's heartening that after so many years of civil society sort of demanding this, that they're actually beginning to really investigate what a real answer could be. Absolutely. Yeah, it it you know it and it does feel it has felt frustrating to be an activist, an advocate at the city level for for you know a while and and folks before me and to continue saying we desperately need you know investment in climate action, we desperately need an investment in affordable housing, we desperately need more investment in transit. Uh, we saw budget budget we saw service level cuts to the TTC in this last year's budget. Um, that we're actually just uh, starting to be reversed now to see all this happening. And every time each one of those cuts happen to stand up and say, please stop doing this. We need this X, Y, or Z uh, that you're cutting. But knowing at the same time that the city doesn't have the level of funding coming in to save every single one of these things with the, the tools that they had. Although Increasing property taxes would have, have brought in a little more to be able to do that. So the the tune of a lot of people doing any sort of advocacy at the city level has become, please, you know, this is why we desperately need this thing, like better uh, TTC service or more affordable TTC service. But also here's how you can fund it. Here's where you can find some money to do it. Because 
there's the knowledge that you just, you can't draw water from a stone here. You know, there has to be new ways to fund these asks. Hence, you know, us asking for a commercial parking levy, but also being part of a big growing call to say, yeah, you're right. The city does need a new deal. We do need other levels of government to step up and say, this is a really old fashioned system. Uh, American cities have vastly greater powers of taxation and, and it shows, you know, they are able to do do things like like in Portland, they have this Portland Clean Energy Fund where frontline communities are, you know, funded to do things like create renewable energy in, in their own backyards or supported to have large community gardens. Those are just dreams in Toronto. But Portland has the had the ability to tell large corporations that bring in over a billion dollars a year, you're gonna pay more, you're gonna pay right into this fund. That's gonna support frontline communities in addressing climate change. Bam done. I make it sound real easy to take years of advocacy to do that. But that's one example of the power that they have that Toronto doesn't have. And so uh, being able to stand up and fight for Toronto to have greater powers and to just have more steady, ongoing, uh, predictable income sources, that's a big part uh, for me of, of you know being an advocate in Toronto. Right, for sure. And so if we can pivot from the fact that we have no money, to what we would do if we had some money. <laughs> I would love to hear, again, because we have seen some movement on some some of these issues. We have seen some successes in terms of beginning to move forward again on some of the plans. But what are you sort of watching and paying attention to in the next you know, six months to a year of Toronto Climate to sort of show that we are going the right way? Yeah, great question. I love turning my brain to that more hopey, changey, visiony thing. What can we do? Climate action right right now, we just got a whole whack of reports from uh, the city's climate division on buildings. What are we going to do about the hundreds of thousands of, of buildings that, you know, that need to be retrofitted? That is, you know, honestly, an, an expensive undertaking. Obviously, the city is not planning to do it alone, but that is a, a huge area where Toronto can be throwing more capital, more money behind loan programs, programs like the high-rise program, which helps high-rise apartment buildings to retrofit and and you know switch over to cleaner sources of energy, make it more comfortable with better insulation, things like that. So there's a few different city programs that uh, could use a little bit more oomph, and as well as being able to to do you know fancy things like leverage private investment, match funding, all that kind of stuff. So and and you know another example is the city's help program, which is for homeowners saw a huge increase in uptake when the federal government stepped in and provided some money for the city to have a zero interest financing component. And then a whole bunch of people said, yeah, I'm in, I'll do it. A whole bunch of people applied to do retrofits, got 0% financing, and then the, the money ran out. And then I was like, oh, okay, breaks on. So if the city was able to just hold that at 0% financing and have the funding to do it, that would help a lot of people step forward at the same time as helping uh, folks in rental buildings through through programs like high rise and other buildings programs as well. And that's something also that the uh, federal government has some programs to to help out with as well. Other things the city can do is a whole lot more. Obviously, we know that the transit system needs a lot of help and needs more investment. So we're starting to see the TTC dig itself out of a little bit of a, a service levels hole of a budget hole as well. And we would love to see that transit system become the world-class 
affordable, eventually free system that it needs to be to hit our climate goals. And the city actually modeled, you know, what it would take to hit the transportation net zero goals that Toronto has. And to do that, it's not shocking that we need to have a really good, really affordable, really reliable transit system. People need to see it as a better way to get around than getting in a car that they may or may not own. Um, so even for people who do own a car, we need a transit system that draws them out of that car and is just much easier to get around in and faster. We don't always have that. Uh, in some places, it is easier to get around by TTC. In many places, it is not. If you live in you know, the uh, deeper Scarborough, if you live in North York, often you're waiting a long time for a bus, as many folks know. And, and if there is access to a car, people are going to choose to take that. So we need to do better. And that needs that needs a lot of investment to to get us there. Yeah, for sure. And I know that just last week, there was a series of reports that got dropped by the city. Like, it seems like they saved up a bunch of reports and said on one Wednesday, they were like, here is everything we've been doing. Uh, are there any highlights or things that you'd pull out of that that you think would be useful for people to know? Oh, boy. It was a busy Wednesday for me, Stefan. I sat <laughs> in that committee room through report after report after report. Um, I think T deputed, uh, spoke to the committee four times. Uh, there were two other items. We almost spoke to them on. We were like, we're going to hold back. Anyway, what they brought forward, and this is just sort of the tip of the iceberg. They brought forward a few reports on net zero buildings. So how we can get specifically the buildings that are already standing in Toronto, existing buildings, what are we going to do about that problem? So they brought forward a report on new standards that they're going to be developing and rolling out that would say to, to building owners, first, they say you have to measure the energy consumption and emissions that you're creating. So we get kind of a benchmark of where everyone's at. And then you're going to have to reduce it year over year by X amount. They haven't worked out all the specifics of the amounts yet, but that report was saying, we're going to do this. We're going to, you know, here's the plan for when it's going to start coming in. We're going to do it in all buildings in Toronto. Um, and they are figuring out that pathway right now. And uh, that'll bring, you know, a predictable pathway to get all of these buildings to net zero. Another another report was on financing programs. So, you know, hand in hand with those those rules and regulations to say you have to get to these, you know, more efficient standards, hand in hand with that, you got to have the support to get people there. So there was a report on how we can transform, uh, potentially transform funding streams for buildings to support buildings big and small to get there. There was also a report not on buildings, but on consumption-based emissions, which some people find really exciting and some people find excruciating to talk about. So you just tell me how much you want to hear about consumption-based emissions. I mean, I at least want to hear the top line. Top line is when you look at how many carbon emissions Torontonians create, when you look at it through the lens of how much we consume, we create a whole lot more carbon emissions than we have been counting. If you look at it through the current system, which is called sector-based emissions, which just kind of counts emissions created within the boundaries of Toronto, it's a little bit less. But when you look at it, if I, you know, if I'm driving a car, a consumption-based emissions inventory is not just going to look at what kind of carbon pollution do I create driving that car around the city. It's going to look at what kind of carbon emissions went into making that car, 
what kind of carbon emissions come out when I go on a trip to Thunder Bay, all the way there and back, even if it's outside the city's boundaries. And yeah, it just counts it essentially in a different way. It also doesn't count the emissions that industrial plants create within Toronto uh, for items consumed by people outside of Toronto. So there's some things it doesn't count. Anyway, it's about 2.5 times higher when you count it that way. Um, some interesting insights came out of that. For me, one is that, you know, the impacts of things like our food, the food that we eat, air travel, the buildings that we we build, because it also counts the embodied emissions from creating like the steel beams that we we put in, in buildings. Um, those things are much, much more impactful when you look at it through the consumption-based lens. So there's there's things that you can't ignore through that lens anymore. It's easy to forget about, you know, all the flights that people might take in Toronto, but when you look at it through this lens, it's it's not easy to forget about those. Right. Yeah. So now that I fully understand what you mean by consumption-based, I am one of the people who's obsessed with it because okay. The level of importance of tackling these sort of scope three emissions, which is one of the ways I've heard of it talked about, is huge, right? Like so often, you to this day, now it's early in the summer, but I was reading an article that made me mad about how Canada's emissions are just a drop in the bucket to China's emissions, so we shouldn't care about them. And that fundamentally misses the point that we are the reason why those emissions are high. Like if we're buying stuff from other places and we're not counting the emissions that we are causing by purchasing those things, we're just basically letting us feel good about stuff because we are over, we're shipping our emissions overseas and then patting ourselves on the back. And so like, if we're not tackling those emissions, we're not doing, I'm not saying we're not doing anything, but we're certainly not tackling the reality that is our responsibility, right? Like, because you could imagine a world where we as Canadians could just do no manufacturing at all and electrify energy grid and then be like, oh, look, we've done it. We're net zero. And yet we are still massively polluting because all the things they're consuming are the flights we're taking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, it, it feels like an attempt to externalize the emissions that we that we are responsible for and then to like accounting them off our books and then being like, oh, look, we did it rather than actually addressing the fact that like there are substantial changes that are actually needed. Yeah, no, it's a great point. It really highlights the the, you know, who is actually who's actually driving a lot of these these rising carbon footprints, who is who is driving the activities that that create a lot of carbon emissions. And often it's not it's not the countries that might have a lot of industry that's creating emissions. It's the countries with people that are the reason that those industries exist because they're purchasing a lot of these items. So I think it's it's very complicated. And for me, it also highlights how, you know, emissions don't have boundaries. Like greenhouse gas emissions don't respect like what is the border of the city of Toronto? What is the border of Ontario? And it's just increasingly ridiculous to me that we count these things based on these very defined geographical boundaries. And we have all these debates over, do we count it this way? Do we count it that way? Do we cut it this way? Why don't we work together a little bit more and essentially do what needs to be done to, to cut emissions as a whole? Uh, but it is a really complicated system, uh, no matter how you cut it for, for counting, partly because of all these geographical boundaries. Yeah, for sure. And so we are coming up to time. And so I want to give you a chance to 
talk to the listeners about like something they should be paying attention to in this fall term because we're coming up to budget season. We're coming up to the time when really a lot of the advocacy is necessary to get things changed. And so if you had some advice for people who want to you know, shift their action or intention to particularly useful places, what and where should they do that? I think now is a great time to be talking to, honestly talking to your federal and provincial representatives to say, express how important it is for for them to take you know, Toronto seriously, to take municipalities seriously and wanting to create a livable city and wanting to create um, a great place for people to live and giving cities the tools to be able to do that. That's really important. If we want to have, you know, world-class cities and cities that many of our federal representatives live in, cities need to have the tools to be able to do that. So I'm realizing right now that I haven't actually reached out to my federal representative, my MP, to say that. I think it's a great time to do it because they're going to be starting that to wrap their brains around their federal budget as well. And in the province, I know sometimes people feel like it's futile to to be reaching out to the Ford government, but look what happened on the green belt. Everybody speaks up, becomes uh, popular enough to hear enough about it. Every every voice is, is going to help out there. So so I think that's a that's a good thing to think about and just paying attention to you. I, I also think that we're at a point with the climate crisis not just in Toronto, but everywhere, where we just have to be doing things. Like really the rubber is hitting the road. This uh, past committee meeting on, on with the focus on buildings really convinced me of that. It's like, all right, we are doing things. We've got to get these things going. We're trying to move them through as quickly as possible. Are there going to be some, some things that need to be tinkered along the way or some mistakes potentially? But we can't hold back. we got to start doing this stuff. And, and it's great to see that uh, some of those creaky gears are starting to move forward a little bit faster. Amazing. Well, this has been our interview with Sarah Buchanan, the campaigns director with the Toronto Environmental Alliance. Thank you so much for being here. And folks, get out there and start doing some stuff. That's our mission for the day. Thanks so much. <laughs>